One Hope Church. Quick. And there we go. All right. So again, good morning. Glad you're here. Um, awesome just to sing and praise to our God. So we're going to continue this morning in our study of the book of 1 Samuel. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 26. And just to, to uh, get us started this morning, just a little bit of, of background. Um, so you have, you know, God in the book of Genesis. We'll start back all the way to chapter 1, where he creates the universe. And unique in his universe, he creates human beings. And breathes life into us. He makes us different um, than the rest of the creation. It's a unique we are a unique creation because God tells us that he has made us in his image. He doesn't say that about as much as we love them and they're wonderful. He doesn't say that about elephants or whales or other creatures, but human beings God made in his image that we would have um, a unique relation with him. We would be able to walk with him. We see Adam and Eve walking with God in the garden in the evenings until humans disobedience enters into the scene human sin rebellion against God that threw us that threw our first parents and all of us into chaos um, and then the rest of the scriptures is the story of God's redemption leading up to his final redemption of of us as human beings and, and of his creation. But along the way, we each need to be redeemed. You know, we're part of a story, uh, but it's a story of, of God's redeeming work. And God promised Abraham, he said, in your seed, you know, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so, even back in Genesis, we have this beautiful reality that God's redemption isn't just for one specific group of people or one specific social class or ethnic class, but it's available to all throughout the world that it's a promise of God that all the families of the earth would be blessed in him. And yet there's a unique call for what becomes um, the nation of Israel. They are the ones who are are given the prophets and the scripture in order to share that with the rest of us. And so they had you know, Moses and Joshua, and then they have these judges. But the people, unfortunately, are hard-hearted, as many of us have been, and many people are today, and kind of want to do things their own way. So they demand a king. And so God says, okay, we'll give you, you know, I'm just warning you, this isn't going to go how you expect or how you want, but I'll give you a king if you really want one. And they say, yes, give us a king anyway. And so God does, and he's going to use that even. See, God even uses human rebellion and can you know, use that even in his story of redemption of us, further showing his power and his grace. And so Saul was the first one. He is disobedient to God. He is rejected. And David is going to take his place. And we've seen the exploits of David um, 
in previous chapters, we see his, his defeat um, in the name of God of the giant using just a stone from a creek bed, a smooth stone in a sling. You know, it's kind of it's, it's funny. Um, you know, Goliath comes out there, you know, huge sword and, you know, javelin and spear. You know, he's got an armor bearer. And he's got this, you know, these huge weapons to come out at him. And David's just like, I've got a 44 Magnum. And uses his sling, boom, one shot to the head, it's over. It's over. Um, but God gave him that victory, but he was confident God would give him that victory and gave him victory over the Philistines. But then Saul becomes jealous. Saul becomes jealous. We saw in chapter 24 that, well, we, we've, before that we see multiple times where Saul tries to end David's life. And then in chapter 24, we, see, we saw um, David's grace. He has opportunity um, in a cave where Saul has gone into the cave, but David and his men are hiding in that same cave. Saul looked at it as a good place to go and have some privacy um, to relieve himself. Just, that's what the scripture says. That's what it is. Um, he didn't know that further in the cave that David was there with his, his men. And even takes... Um, tears his garment and shows him once Saul has gone out and onto the other ridge and shows him what he could have done. And then um, here in 26, we're going to see another um, opportunity for Saul. Um, as Saul pursues David for David again, David again spares Saul a second time. And so let's read um, a bit of this, we'll go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll, we'll, we'll discuss it. So just in chapter 26, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hekelah, opposite Jeshman? Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him, to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hekelah, which is opposite Jeshem by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. And David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Now Saul lay within the camp with the people encamped all around him. And David answered and said, to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zeruahai, brother of Johab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head, and Abner and the people lay all around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. 
We thank you for your word, that it is truth. We pray this morning you would use it to instruct us and to continue to teach us. We thank you for the example in these chapters that we have of um, David with his his mercy and grace um, towards Saul and that we can learn um, from that. We thank you most of all that it's just a small picture of the grace you have shown us. None of us worthy of it. And we pray that we would understand more of your grace and appreciate it more. And we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So what do we have here? What do we have here? Saul is once again at David's disposal. Abishai, Abishai, that name's struggling. I'm struggling with that one this morning. Yeah, call me Abby, that's what that works. But remember, remember his name. Um, his name will be important um, in, the, in the coming chapters. Um, but, you know, he's, you know, he sees the world through a, through a lens that just says, you know, David is the, is the one God has chosen. David is the right one to be the king, is the rightful king over Israel. He has done justice. Saul has been rejected by God and has done evil. He is here asleep at our feet. And I got a spear right here. Like, hasn't God just given Saul to us and this can just be over? But this is the second time in a situation like that David has said no. Because in David's, how David views the world is different. Um, And I think it's because of the spirit of God directing David in this way. But that Saul's demise isn't going to be at his hands. That that he needs to leave that into God's hands, even though he has opportunity. And and this is, you know, for those of you who are here for the first time, you know, it's like, well, some of this sounds like, you know, a message from a few weeks ago. Well, yeah, it is. But... Sometimes the scripture gives us things multiple times, even in succinct order, because you know this could have been summarized very, very quickly. You know, and it's the Holy Spirit that directs the author to write these things. So there's a reason why it's laid out in some detail both times. And it's because, again, we, even those of us who are followers of Jesus, we've surrendered, we've laid down at the feet of Jesus and says, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. You're my savior, you're my king, I want to do things your way. It's still in the practical applications and the daily things of life. It's hard for us to deny what can seem to be God's obvious good for us. When in fact he has something different in mind. When in fact that good is a test to see if we're patient enough to wait for what is better. Do we as followers of Jesus think that you know, someone like David is the only one who gets tested in this sort of way? Or is part of our character to learn to hear the voice of God and to not be rash in our judgments and, and leaping toward conclusions of what we think is right and good for us? but to take the time and to really seek the will of God on those things. 
Are we willing to exercise patience and obedience? Remember even in the garden, what did Jesus pray? He says, you know, let this cup pass before thee. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Or not my desire, but your desire. And, you know, if, if Jesus Christ himself, um, in his flesh, in his humanity, in the humanity side, you know, did such... We have these examples of David and of others of the scriptures that had to exercise patience and not go with expediency, but what was, what was right. We're also going to be put in similar situations in our lives. Where we can take what appears to us to be the obvious thing to do or to slow down and, and, and seek God's wisdom and counsel. In verse 10, it says, David said, Furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please, take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head, and they got away. And no man saw or knew it or awoke, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Okay, so again, we have it very clearly, David's perspective. God's going to handle this one way or the other. I don't have to do it with my own hands. And it says a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them, because, you know, you imagine that camp setting. He's got 3,000 men. Some of those men would have been on watch. The only reason they can go down there so easily is because it says the Lord put a deep sleep over the camp. Because they had, you know, these were, these were chosen warriors, 3,000 chosen men of all of Israel. These were the, you know, their, you know, this is the best of the best that Saul had. And, you know, these, these men were, were used to, to a disciplined life. And when it was your turn to watch, you watched. You didn't fall asleep, you watched. And they've got, you know, Saul in the center of the camp. And it's, imagine these circles of people around and around and around. How many people David and Abishai have to walk through in order to get there? It's pretty intense. But it's just because the Lord gave them that opportunity. And again, that's another place where you could say, man, the Lord put them all asleep. It's the easier opportunity. But that wasn't the point. The point of this exercise is what we're about to read. Now, verse 13. Now David went over to the other side and stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great distance being between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Do you not answer Abner? I like getting woken up like that. (laughs) Then Abner answered and said, What are you? Who are you calling out to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded the Lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy your Lord the king. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. 
So David wakes up, you know, that whole camp. And he wants them to bear witness of what has happened. Now, David has a long history with Abner. Abner is Saul's cousin, so he's loyal to Saul, you know, by family, by blood. Uh, but I think David may have been frustrated with Abner. That Abner, even though he was Saul's cousin, didn't choose the right side to be on in this disagreement. You see, Abner had a front row seat to God's choosing of David over Saul. He had a front row seat to all that. Consider, Abner witnessed David kill Goliath. He's the one that presented David back to Saul and Jonathan with Goliath's, this is graphic, but it's what it says in Scripture, with Goliath's head in David's hand, it's Abner who leads him back and presents him as the commander of the army to Saul and Saul's son, Jonathan. He saw what God had done when everybody else was terrified. And David said, you know, who is this Philistine that's going to mock God and his armies? Who is he going to that's going to mock God? And, you know, and he says, you know, God's going to give us this victory. It's David who has the faith that nobody else in the camp of Israel has. And Abner is front row witness to that whole scene. And he's witness to when Jonathan gives him his cloak and his, his sword. And, and Jonathan himself has handed over his place as the heir of the throne of Israel. He's there when that happens. He's there in chapter 19 to witness Saul's irrational rage where Jonathan, you know, figuring out what his father wants to do in this situation, says, you know, David has asked to go and to be with his, his family. And, and Amner is there next to Saul as witness when Saul flies into a rage and, you know, curses at Jonathan and swears he's going to kill David. He sees all of it. And yet he doesn't choose to be on the side of justice. He doesn't choose to be on the side of justice. Yeah, and, and that's something that's really important. We need to understand this. You know, when throughout human history, there's times when people aren't on the side of justice, but, you know, they've been manipulated and they've only had access to certain information. They've only had access to certain information, so they see the world a certain way because of that. Think about people born in North Korea today. It's hard for them to get truth from a, you know, from a, a real perspective because you know, there's, a, there's a control over the information they receive from you know, when they're born, and it's really hard to get anything other than the, the, the government-sanctioned information that's being fed to them. Some can find it, but it's difficult. It's difficult, okay? But it's a different scenario altogether when you have access to understand, when somebody has access to understand what is right and what is wrong and has the opportunity to decide between justice and injustice and takes injustice anyway because it's personally advantageous. Whether that's social, you know, socially advantageous, for power, advantageous, for financial gain, advantageous. 
It's different when you have access to all the information and choose to deny that information and choose to stay on the wrong side of the issue. That's a different thing altogether. Abner in this situation is very guilty of fighting against the ways of God because he has access to all the information and he chooses still the one whom God rejected. And it's not enough to say, well, he did so because he's family, he's, co he's a cousin. That really doesn't, that, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. And so whenever the church is presented with moral and ethical dilemmas, we have to go with what is right according to the scriptures. We can't, no matter how much it hurts us or how, how disadvantageous it, uh, it is to us to be on the side of justice and the side of truth and the side of God's way, we must decide, you know, consequences be what they may, we're still going to be on the side of truth and of justice and what's right. Because we trust that God will take care of us regardless. And that even if he doesn't, what does Jesus tell us? Don't fear those who can kill your body. And, you know, we might not necessarily like feel, fear a physical death, but don't fear those who can take what you hold to be dear. But fear God is the message of Jesus. Because the fear of the Lord, what does Scripture tell us? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so there are times when we, as, as, particularly as followers of Jesus, come to a decision point where there's a, a line in the sand and we have to decide which side of that line we're going to be on. And, and the reality of it is we don't always get to decide what those lines are going to be or who's going to draw them. You know, sometimes God draws a line on the sand. And he says, with me or against me. And sometimes the world draws a line in the sand and says, with us or against us. And we have to decide then. We, you know, we're not God. We don't get to decide. And we're not the world either. You know, we're, you know, we're what did Jesus say? Be in the world, but not of the world. So we don't get to decide the world's you know, morals and ethics and how they change from decade to decade. Or even faster now. We don't, we don't get to decide that. We're a little part of it, but we're, we're not the decision makers on what the world is going to say. Here's the line in the sand. Whose side are you on? But we have to decide whose side we're on. And the reality of it is, if you're going to help anybody that's on the wrong side of the line, you have to be on the right side of the line. You, you have to be with God and his gospel if you're going to help anybody in truth and love. Now, you know, the, the reality is there's some of this stuff, you know, some of these lines, like, uh, you know, we can bring up a subject like human trafficking. And it's not hard. 
you know, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, like, and in our culture, in our society, in our economic system, nobody in here has anything to gain from human trafficking. So it's easy to be on the right side of justice on that issue. Folks, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about when it's easy to be on the right side of justice. You know, I mean, like that one? Come, I mean, that's really, really simple. That's really, really easy. I'm talking about when it's hard. When I'm talking, what I'm talking about is when a significant portion of the population, and they have the, the social momentum, and they say that something God has said is wrong, and they say it's right. That's what I'm talking about. That's when it's hard to be on the right side of the line. That's when it takes courage. That's when it takes guts. And so where are we then? You know, that's the question. It's not when it's easy. It's where are we then when it's hard? And we need to be on the right side of the line. Now, we need to do so still maintaining the principles that God has given us. What has God given us? Love God with all that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. Love. But love in truth. And you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Like as God's people, we are to walk in his truth. So we are to stay in his truth. Even when that is difficult. But we are not, you know... Somebody curses at you, we don't curse back. We bless. When we need to argue, we need to do so still loving the person we're arguing with and without being unnecessarily argumentative. But there are times and places where we have to stand up for what is right. And whenever historically the church has failed to do that, it has been to its peril and to, to great harm. In multiple ways. One way is, you know, just being on the wrong side of God's justice is, is not, a, not a good idea for, for us as followers of Jesus, right? Like, that's, that's, that's bad. But when the church compromises and tries to say what the world, you know, if the world says something isn't sin anymore, well, the world, you know, the church tries to compromise and say, you know, well, that's not sin anymore. You, you know what it's done? It's attempted suicide. For the church, that's attempted suicide. Because once the church becomes just like the world, kind of what's the point of it? What's the point of it at that point? If the church is just like the world, well, why not just be in the world and just do a social club, you know, sort of thing? There's no point in it. So whenever things have, you know, and I'm using the term church loosely here, and you have to understand that, but whenever something calls itself the church and it says, well, we're just going to go with what the world says on this, it's, it's, a, it's a suicide. It's an attempted suicide. And that's a terrible thing. And that's a terrible thing. So, you know, Abner is on the wrong side, and it's a sad 
thing because David still, you know, David sees good in him that he's a brave warrior who is like you in Israel, he says. You know, David sees good in him, and that's, again, as the story continues in future chapters, I don't want to give away all that right now. Of course, you know, you can, you can read all of, all of it you want. It's not, you know, that's, uh, there's nothing like, you know, they're not exactly plot spoilers here or whatever, but you understand what I'm saying? It's, it becomes more evident in the future that David does respect that there are things in Abner that are there to respect. And it's just, it's a, it's a crying shame. It's just a shame that he hasn't gone with David. Or at least just gone with Jonathan. You know, Jonathan's not in the forest with his father to hunt down David. He's like, I ain't doing that. You know, and as we'll see, like, Jonathan will still go with Saul to fight, you know, a true enemy. But he's not going to fight against David because David's someone he loves, not his enemy. Abner could have said, as commander of the army, he has a lot of power and a lot of authority. And he said, he could have just said, David is innocent. And we stand with your son. And we're not going to pursue him. I won't lead that command anyway. See, for, for the wrong sort of power to lose its power, good people in positions to do so have to take risk. And Abner wasn't willing to take that risk. Verse 17, Then Saul knew David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son David? David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done, or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please, let my lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If the lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is the children of men, may they then be cursed before the lord. For they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the lord, saying, Go serve other gods. So now... Do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea as one when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Now David here is using you know, some exaggerated language here at the end of this because no one views David as like small and tiny like a partridge bird or a flea or something like that. But he is... Speaking in a, an exaggerated humility, you can put it that way, just to show Saul, like, I'm not your enemy. You know, he, he talks the opposite of being boastful and proudful by kind of unnecessarily putting himself low, but he's doing show to show a contrast of, like, Saul, I'm not your enemy. That's the whole point in his language. He's not meant for you to take him, like, hyper literally here. But he wants to show where he's at. In verse 21, Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more, because my life was precious in your eyes this de- in, in this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. 
And David answered and said, Here is the king's spear. Let one of, the, one of the young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. There's a couple things here that are interesting. One, Saul admits that he's wrong. So Saul admits that he's wrong. But when he says, return, my son David, I will harm you no more, it's problematic. Because Saul has gone back and forth. I'm going to kill you. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. I'm not going to kill you. You know, there's things where people can kind of like put you on a string and toy you around with a little bit. Kind of like, I'm going to give you your $5 tomorrow. I'm not going to give you your $5 tomorrow. There's that. But I'm going to kill you. I'm not going to kill you. That's one you kind of say, you know, you might be telling me the truth, but... I'm going to stay over here on my side of the mountain. I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay on this mountain. You go on that way. I'm going to go this way. You go that way. How about that? You can send somebody over to get the spear. You know, David's not fully believing the words of Saul. Isn't this a problem? This is a problem with lying. This is a problem with liars. Even if a liar is telling the truth, can you believe him? If you already have the reputation of going back, if a person has a reputation of going back on what they said, it's hard to trust that person. That's why it's so important, you know, especially as followers of Jesus, that we are people who say what we mean and mean what we say and who, you know, we do our best. None of us are perfect. All of us, you know, mess up. But that we certainly would never intentionally lie to someone or intentionally deceive, or intentionally say, hey, I'm going to do this for you, and then intentionally not do it. Or I'm going to give you this, and then intentionally not give it. You know, there, we should be, you know, our character, like if you were a liar, came to know Jesus, shouldn't be a liar anymore. You know, there should be a evidence of a changed life. There might be some bad habits to break. There might be some mistakes along the way, and you got to go back. But, you know, and if, and if a person wants to, you know, has, like, Say they didn't know the Lord. They had developed a habit of lying. Then came to know the Lord. So the Lord's changing that character. Well, what's the best way they can fix that? You know, try to tell the truth, but when they realize they haven't, like to go and admit it and say, I lied. And that's how you undo it. That's how you undo it. Is admitting it, recognizing it, confessing it, turning from it, you know, repeat, right? Until, that, until that's no longer a habit anymore until it's no longer a habit. Because, you know, people who follow God should be able to trust their word. You know, when the Apostle Paul walked in somewhere and said, well, he's an apostle. Eh, Okay, whatever. If he came in and said, hey, this is what I'm going to do, you know, the church didn't have to go, "Mm, not sure he's going to do that. If he said, hey, you know, if y'all take up this offering, we'll take it to Jerusalem. You don't have to go, ah, I'm not sure that money's going to get there. Because he's a follower of Jesus. 
But there are so many in our world who will use, you know, Christianity and the you know Christian you know religious things as an opportunity to find suckers. All the time in churches, you hear you find things about you know things being again using the term very loosely, but things stolen and and people getting you know wealthy off of what they've taken from these pleas of people to have more faith. So there's people that will look for things that call themselves church and or create them intentionally for the for being deceitful for their own gain. Well, what do you think Jesus is going to do with that? You remember he went into the temple because they were using it, there were people in there who were using it to try to get rich. And and he went in there, let's see, how did he go in? He went in there very soft-spoken and asked them to please stop doing that. Wait, that's not what I read in the Gospels. He, he went in with a whip and being, you know, he started flipping tables and he said, you've turned my house of prayer into a den of thieves. He called them thieves. He called them what they were. So there's a lot of false preachers, you know, on TV, just taking people's money. You know what they are? Thieves. They're thieves. In God's sight, they're thieves. It might look like they get away with it now. One day, Jesus is going to come and turn over their tables. He can come and turn over their tables. But there's a problem with Saul's reputation at this point. He's a liar. He might be telling the truth now, but I don't know. You don't know. We can't tell. Because what might he do tomorrow? And here I think, um, you know, again, we see, just one more time we have it where he says, you know, David's perspective, it was the Lord who anointed Saul, and so it was the Lord who could unanoint him. That was his job. You know, that was God's deal to deal with. It wasn't his. But he does pray that God would deliver him out of all tribulation. And I think these words, now these words are definitely true from Saul. May you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. Now, I don't know if those are the words of his own heart, but it also could be that the Lord is basically making Saul tell the truth about that and prophesy in front of all the people, you know, in front of all the army and everybody else that they know. Now I have a question. Again, talking about that line in the sand, if you just witnessed all that and you're one of those 3,000 men, you stay with Saul? Or do you go over with David? The sad thing is, it looks like they stay with Saul. It's not just Abner doing that. And that's a sad thing. That's a sad thing. I really think just in these verse chapters 23 through 26, we see David at his best. 
Uh, really, from Goliath, you know, when he comes onto the scene after he's anointed, you know, by Samuel, and then he fights Goliath, and through to 26, we see David at his best. We see him a valiant warrior. We see that he doesn't um, take justice into his own hands or vengeance into his own hands. Uh, we see that he saves the city of Keilah from the Philistines, um, even though they wouldn't spare him. You know, it's the sad truth. Um, we see that he listens to Abigail the Waz um, when he spares Nabal and his men in verse chapter 25 from last week, and then sparing Saul's life again. We really see David at his best here. Our only desire is that he would just stay at his best, right? That's not going to be the case. We know that. Um, but I, I like, I love these chapters. I love seeing David in this light and in this way. This, in these chapters, it's probably about as close to, to God as he is and as he gets. You know, until after his failings drive him to repentance. Does that make sense? Um, but in this section, it's just, he's strong, he's a great leader, he's merciful, he's reasonable, he listens to wisdom, like he, he's got the right things going. Um, and we see his, his grace and his mercy, and that reminds us of the grace and mercy of God. Because the reality of it is in our sins, you know, we had made ourselves enemies with God. Yet God, merciful toward us, not waiting for us to, to turn and to be better and, you know, to get things right. No, he sends Jesus, Romans 5 eight. but God shows us how much he loves us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He wasn't waiting for us to be these awesome, wonderful people. But God in his, his love shows us how much he loves us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What David shows us here is just a small taste of the grace and mercy of God towards us. And so this morning, I'm hoping that we would remember Jesus in his mercy that he went to the cross. And at the cross, he, even on the cross, Jesus prayed, prayed, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. The mercy and grace of our Savior and King. And after he was risen from the dead, he told his disciples, we read in Acts chapter 1, that he told his disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait from the promise of the Father, which he said, you had heard from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, that's what's celebrated on this Sunday in our calendar year, Pentecost. So, the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. We go on to read that they went out, you know, they went out into the streets in Jerusalem, and because of the, of the festival of Pentecost, which is from the Old Testament, you know, people would stay, people would come from, 
you know, all over the world. There were Jewish people, but they would all come from all over the world as a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in this time, and they would stay from before Passover because you don't, you know, you don't know how long exactly that trip's going to take. So a lot of people would arrive, you know, well before Passover, and they wouldn't leave until after Pentecost. So they were witnesses to all these things that had happened with Jesus going to the cross and then the report of his resurrection and the witnesses that, you know, there were other witnesses that had seen that, the disciple, different disciples and different people, but these people from all over the place, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Fergia and Pamphylia, Egypt and other parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and Gentile converts, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God. And all of them were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? We can answer that question today. It meant the birth of the church, the beginning of the church. We celebrate it. All of us who believe in Jesus are part of the church universal, called Big C, (laughs) Big C Church. From the first disciples to people all over the world today and everybody in between who has humbled themselves before Jesus and said, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Be my Savior and King. Something, I mean, that's what, whether those were the words, I'm not talking about the exact words that are said there, but I'm talking about the position of the heart. That was the attitude of the heart. All of those have been part of the church. God's universal church. We're just a little tiny local expression of that today in this particular place. But we belong to Jesus. You know, that's our our hope and our glory. And as we take the bread and the cup this morning, we remember that Jesus died for us at the cross and he rose from the dead and that we are his and that we are one body in the Lord. And we share a commonality that is far greater than our differences. We're all different people, different backgrounds coming to this place, but what we have in common in Jesus when we take the bread and cup far outdoes any differences that we have socio-economic, ethnic differences, language differences, anything else, all of those are tiny. And that's true for us with any believer and true believer in the world. Any difference we have is small compared to what we have in common because there's nothing greater than Jesus Christ himself. And if we have him in common, we hold together in common what is the greatest and most important thing to hold in common. It far outweighs any differences that we have. And we get to look forward. See, when we take the bread and the cup, this morning we look back at the cross, and we look back at the resurrection, and we look back at our own salvation when we came to know Him, and we look back at even you know, the last week, and Lord, 
examine my heart? Is there something I need to confess before you? We look back and we look present and today I worship you as I take this bread and this cup. And I look forward to and tomorrow and the rest of the day and tomorrow and the rest of this week help me to live in such a way that pleases you. And I look forward to the great things God's going to continue to do through his true church throughout the world. And I look forward to the return of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom and to be part of the reality when it says in the book of Revelation that around the throne of God are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That indeed we will see the fulfillment of all the families of the earth being blessed in the name of Jesus. And we look forward to that. And because we hold the big picture... You see, we've got the big picture from Genesis, Genesis to Revelation. When it comes to today, we should be willing to say no to sin in our own hearts. Because we have Genesis and Revelation, we should be able to say no to our temptations in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we have Genesis to Revelation, we should have the courage to stand on the right side of justice even when it's difficult to do so. See how it all works together? And it all works together when we don't view Jesus as just someone that, that gives us a get-out-of-hell-free card. But we view him as he really is the Savior and the King overall. And we view ourselves as who we really are because if you are a follower of Jesus, then what does that make you? Yes, it makes you a child of God, but it also makes you a servant of God. A servant is not above his king or her king. It makes us a servant. And so we have to answer that question as servants. How does that play out as servants of the king? You know, in our lives and, and in our church. You know, we're celebrating Pentecost this morning and you know, thinking back to that, what did the what did they do in the time between Jesus ascended and and when Pentecost happened? They were in the upper room, about 120 people or so, and they prayed. They prayed. That's what they did. They prayed. They prepared themselves. And so I I just want to challenge us this morning along those lines. Pray. You know, good stuff happening. Mission work, Mexico, Tanzania, other places, um, here, flea market, individual conversations, people's, people's lives being affected, but also people's lives being challenged and attacked. Pray. Need to pray. So I'm just going to set out a challenge for us, and, and I'm just going to ask us collectively to take it if we're willing to take it that the rest of this month of June 
and the and all of July that we just commit to every person committing a simple prayer when you first wake up in the morning. You can pray as much as you want to, but just as part of your prayer, Lord, please do a work in my heart and life, and Lord, please do a work in our church. Just pray that every day. And pray, pray, pray on that more as you're led to pray on it more. Pray together. Grab somebody say, hey, let's pray about this. Grab your spouse. Let's pray. Grab a friend. Let's pray. Grab your kids. Let's pray. But just commit every day, the rest of June and July. I haven't even counted how many days that is, but it's really not, it's not that many. It's a month and a half, a little more than a month and a half. And just commit, I will pray for those two things every day. Then let's see how August goes. <laughs> okay? We believe prayer changes and affects things. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We thank you for your love and for your goodness and your grace um, towards us. We thank you that in every chapter of Scripture, there are lessons for us. Help us to apply them. Lord, we thank, we're thankful for your gospel that is the power of salvation to all who believe. And Lord, we pray that through the testimony of this church, that your, this little church, that your universal church would grow. That you would use our little, our littleness to show your glory and your power. Because you are awesome. As we take the bread and the cup this morning, help us to do so and confess our sins and also giving praise and glory to your great name. We confess this morning, we proclaim this morning, Jesus, this is your church. It is for you. Please have your way in it. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. We'll have our open time and everybody's welcome to you know, request a song or to read a scripture or to pray or... We ask that you have been with us. We know you. You know us. If you want to expound you know, on anything um, about the scripture. Or, but we'll just take a, a little time for that. The table is open for you to take it as you're ready to take it. Um, it's in remembrance of Jesus. Remember that, well, you can't remember somebody you haven't met or don't know really well. Um, so if you don't know him yet, know him and then remember him. But you know him simply by you know, um, admitting your need for him and asking him to save you. It's really that simple. It's no special words or special formula, but just express the reality um, in your heart um, and, and ask God to, to do everything, and he will. He will indeed. Um, he saves. We don't. He saves. Um, so I encourage you for, towards that. If you need that encouragement this morning and... Again, it's free to take it as, as you're ready.